Hello everyone and welcome to the Politicking Podcast. In this week's episode we'll be discussing culture wars within both major political parties and where that leaves our country in the run-up to the next general election. We'll also be talking about Nicola Sturgeon's resignation and what this might mean for Scottish Independent Referendum 2. And the rising council tax, why it's happening and what this might mean for our own bills. So Stuart, hello, how are we doing? I'm alright, yeah, no, I hope everybody's doing well. It's been a of another challenging week really lots of issues floating around and uh, lots for us to get our teeth into i think ben yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. it's always busy isn't it these days it seems like it's crisis after crisis at the minute um so yeah so first i mean first discussion point really is the culture war stuff um there's been a lot in the news lately about rifts in the two main political parties whether that's with the conservatives with rishi sunak struggling to keep boris johnson quiet recently uh, or Keir Starmer and trying to distance himself from the, the left of the party and Jeremy Corbyn's politics. So perhaps we start with Rishi's troubles with the right of the party. So he seemed to win the argument when he took over from Liz Truss and a position on economics. But Boris has been putting a lot of pressure on him lately around his proposed Brexit deal for Northern Ireland and, and a few other uh, political issues as well. What What's going on there, Stuart? Can you just give us a bit of an overview of what's happened recently with, with the Conservative Party? Yeah, I think the trouble for Rishi is that, you know, most times uh, when a, a, a new leader or a new prime minister takes over, the old prime ministers go quiet or, or, or sometimes aren't even in, don't remain in Parliament. So David Cameron, when he resigned pretty swiftly, disappeared off to his uh, little writing shed caravan, expensive caravan in the back of his garden to write his memoirs. Rishi's in a different position. He's got Boris breathing down his neck. He's got Liz Truss not quite breathing down his neck, but certainly, you know, in and around. So he's trying at all times, I think, really just to to show that he's a different sort of leader, a different sort of prime minister. Um, look, anybody that can keep Boris Johnson quiet, I frankly, would be working miracles. I don't I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, not least because I think Boris in his own head you know, was deprived of the leadership uh, and the prime ministership unfairly. So, you know, until he decides to go from Parliament or the electorate decide to not re-elect him, he, this is this is going to be a constant theme. This is going to be a constant theme. And and this Northern Ireland, you know, issue around Brexit, I think is, you know, is a, is a case in point. He, he, he did a deal. Lots of people have criticised that deal. Sunak's trying to go into Northern Ireland to, you know, patch up a, a work, a, a new workable deal, as he would see it, that overcomes the problems of the, you know, that, that Boris Johnson and, um, uh, you know, Lord Frost uh, left. But Boris still thinks he can express a view on it. Mm. Do, do you think that's down to where the where their kind of parties are at the minute in terms of... Because I, I still get the impression a lot of them would prefer Boris to be at the helm than Rishi. And they probably think as well Boris would give them a better chance at the next election. Do you think it's down to that? Well, I think that's... Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean... Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, in the in the intro, Ben, you you talked about the sort of the you know the right of the party and and you know membership and the role of memberships more generally. I think within political parties, um, there are large swathes of the Conservative Party membership that uh, want Boris. They still want Boris. Uh, so there have been some at least one deselection, I think, or two, you know, a couple of deselections, effectively where you know existing MPs have put them Conservative MPs have put themselves forward uh, to stand again, and they've been rejected by their local parties because some of them have gone. Hold on, you were complicit, involved in you know removing Boris. 
this is our revenge on you for for doing that. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of party members out there that are annoyed that Boris went, and then they're certainly annoyed that um, that Liz Truss got you know kicked out. They voted massively for her. They wanted her low tax, low regulation, you know, global Britain type agenda, and yet uh, she was you know got rid of very swiftly. And the the candidate they didn't want and rejected pretty substantially is now the prime minister. So yeah, yeah. they've got a lot. They've got a lot. They've got a lot of internal um, navel gazing to do uh, in the run up to the ele- next general election and and afterwards. Maybe maybe more so afterwards, depending on the outcome. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it's a bit of a tricky time for them at the minute. I think I just, I I can't really see where it ends, Stuart. Either to be honest, I mean, the only way I could probably see it see it happening is they've got to get Brexit fully finalised. Which I mean. Will that day ever actually come? It feels like not to me. But like, I don't know. They just they, that infight, and it seems to have been going on for a while. To be honest, because even when you look back to like the Theresa May days when she ta- kind of took over from David Cameron, there was still a lot of infighting going on then, and that's been happening constantly since. And I, th- I wonder as well. I was gonna gonna ask you this, Stuart, about the Brexit infighting because there's been a lot about well, perhaps the public's perception on Brexit's changing now. So it, it wasn't the best thing to do. I think people are starting to kind of like think that. I've I seen an opinion poll, something like 59% of people in the country don't think it's the best thing for the country. Will that flip it again on its head? Because I think like, although people are really supportive of Boris and Brexit was Boris's baby. So do you think maybe now the tide is turning a bit on Brexit? Do you think that will flip people more to favour Rishi over Boris or do you think that doesn't matter? I mean there's I think you can look at these things in various ways there are different interpretations you could say that one of the reasons that he's that Rishi is trying to again in speech marks sort out this Northern Ireland problem again uh, is to keep Brexit sort of on the agenda because the more that the electorate, and, you know, it's really difficult to always speak in these broad terms, but, you know, if the electorate think that Brexit, you know, is still a thing and is still to be sorted out, then actually does that lend them lend them more to the Conservative Party? Is that the sort of, the, you know, the reason for the Red Wall collapsing and, and you know, the Conservative, you know, it, large numbers of seats going Conservative at the last general election? So therefore, actually, it does Rishi some favours to keep Brexit sort of bubbling away because it keeps his base, you know, energised and keeps his electorate, you know, motivated to come out of the next general election. Or, as you say, does it remind people that actually those sunny uplands that were promised at the time of the referendum actually haven't been delivered? Now, again, we can all have arguments about when those sunny uplands were meant to be delivered, whether it's a couple of years, whether it's five years, ten years, etc., and it depends very much on your views of these things. This is still a really contentious issue uh, for so many people and, and not least across families. Um, you know, there are divisions that are still pretty raw on these things. The trouble is for Labour, as the main opposition party in the UK, they can't really go too close to it. The soon, if they start talking about free movement of people and single markets and things like that, it does lend the electorate back to the Conservative Party. Or pushes the you know the electorate back to the Conservative Party, so you know you're right. You can look at these polls. I think you know you can see people are, are not very happy with it. I don't think it's you know the timing doesn't yet seem to be right for people to have had a, a wholesale change of heart, and actually 
you know, the electorate are never wrong. It's a bit like the consumer, the consumer is never wrong. The electorate is never wrong. So therefore, um, they have to recognise that there are changes uh, economically or whatever, and therefore they can change their vote rather than a recognition that actually we should never have voted for it in the first place. That's just not going to happen. That's not how people are. Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean we're going to touch on Labour in a sec. Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree with, with what you're saying there, Stuart, to be honest. I think like maybe there is a bit more time that needs to pass and stuff. But I mean, look, looking at Labour now, so perhaps we, we just head over to the other side of the house. Um, it's interesting news about Keir Starmer. Um announcing last week that he, he won't be allowing Jeremy Corbyn to stand as a Labour MP in the next election. And do you think that's a bit of a, a bid to distance himself from the left? I, I thought his comments were quite strong, really, about everyone who kind of supports him as well can leave too. Um, I just don't know where... That, yeah, I, I mean, I can see exactly why he's doing it. It's in a bid to kind of for the next general election and stuff like that. But, like, did he need to do it? Or was he winning that battle anyway? Um, if you look back, I think over the years, then Labour leaders tend to prove themselves by asserting their authority over their own party first. So whether it's Neil Kinnock, whether it's Tony Blair, whether it's now Keir Starmer, um, uh, or even back in the day, uh, if you go back as far as Hugh Gateskill in the 1950s, uh, and even I'm not that old to remember Hugh Gateskill, but um, and actually he wasn't successful. So some of the things that he tried to do, and and they, I'm paraphrasing, there were quite a few issues he had to deal with. But this idea that Labour loses an election, it lurches to the left, it doesn't win elections. A more centrist figure takes over. They then prove themselves by bashing the left, uh, and then they prove themselves to the electorate and then get back in. That's sort of the way that Labour politics has gone, you know, uh, post Second World War. So this is in that set in that setting, um, you know, this is this is, uh, you know, Keir Starmer following that model and proving himself. Now, will it cause a huge backlash? I don't think there's been a huge backlash. Frankly, there were a few people and certainly some of his supporters in the parliamentary Labour Party. Well, one in particular came out quite you know strongly. Uh, in in Corbyn's favour, but actually there hasn't been too much else. And I think part of the reason for that is that if you look at the Labour Party membership figures, they're down now. Normally, for a Labour Party as a mass membership party, the fact that it you know it used to have millions, in fact, both political parties, main political parties, used to have millions of members. But you know the idea that you know a, a way that a Labour leader could prove that they were successful was to get lots of new members coming in. So it goes from, I don't know, 200,000, 250,000 up to 500,000, 600,000. It's a brilliant way and we've really proved ourselves. You know, I'm a great leader. Look at the membership figures. Actually, membership has gone down. But, you know, the the assumption is that the people that have left the Labour Party are the Corbyn supporters. So effectively, when Corbyn lost, you know, got, you know, decided not to be leader anymore. Therefore, those people that were motivated to rejoin by his membership have gone. Therefore... Is there going to be a massive backlash now? Probably not, because they've already gone. Yeah, and I think like it, it, it seems to me, he's, it Key has purposely done that to be honest, because it's although although that's gone down and stuff like that, is his whole kind of focus lately has been around 
serving the general uh, the general public rather than the party. I, I feel like he's putting public first and he's trying to resonate a bit more with the public. I even noticed, and this this is something that's really like slight, but like I think it does matter. The use of like the the British flag, you know, behind like the Labour back backstand and stuff like that, and I think you know that that's usually related to unionists. Um, sometimes I think the the British flag has a bit of a negative kind of connotation to it. That's a bit right wing and stuff like that. Um, but the fact that he's even using that kind of stuff, I think, shows he's trying to be a bit more to where the population is at the minute. Yeah, I, I agree with that totally, Ben. I mean, and, you know, and Blair did it. Blair, Blair used the, the Union Jack. Yeah. He wasn't afraid to stand beside the Union Jack, whereas arguably, you know, you asked Jeremy Corbyn questions about, you know, uh, you know, Russia, uh, in particular his, you know, reaction to some of the, you know, the poisonings. Um, and he was portrayed, or perceived, I should say, as not being very patriotic, you know, not standing up for the, you know, being close to the armed forces, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that drove traditional Labour voters across the country, but particularly in the North and the Red Wall, etc. Uh, Barmy. That, that's why, that's yeah. part of the reason why they voted. You know, the, this isn't, you know, part of this wasn't about, you know, Boris's great appeal, although he did have an appeal and Brexit. It's partly Brexit. It's part. It was partly Corbyn. Corbyn was not, you know, well received by traditional Labour voters. They didn't like the fact that he didn't stand up for Britain. So you're right. I think, and that flag is is entirely part of it. It's, you know, it's it's proving that Labour can be trusted, and therefore, yeah. it also. I think the other thing, you know, uh, you know, when when um, you know Rishi stands up at Prime Minister's question time and says, "Well, you backed." Uh, Jeremy Corbyn for the, to be Prime Minister, therefore you can't be trusted, you know, and Captain Hindsight and all these sort of things from, from Boris. What it now enables Starmer to do is say, I've, I've chucked him out. He's not standing. Yeah. What more, you know, what more do you possibly want? What, 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 yeah. you know, what, what's, what better way to show that I am a strong leader than by not letting him stand? So it's partly that. So it's partly internal it's partly electoral and it's partly to diffuse the you know the negative messaging that the conservatives will try and use against him as well yeah no i think i think you're, you're right with that um so i mean just just to wrap this this segment up Stuart, but if if i if you was a better man would you say rishi sunak is going to still be the leader of the conservatives into the next general election uh Yes, because I think they'd destroy themselves if they had to try and elect another new leader. I think what's really interesting is where how is when the election will be. Now, yeah. you know, everybody thinks it'll be somewhere in distance as long as they can keep going. But frankly, if Rishi Sunak tries to push through some sort of new Northern Ireland arrangement, for, you know, post Brexit, and he can't get his own, he can't get the DUP, and he can't get half of his own party, or say half, you know. A number, a large number of his own party to back that. Then does does that mean the end of this particular government? Does that mean literally, by the time anybody's listening, you know, to this podcast or our future episodes, actually the election's already happened. That's not outside the realms of possibility. Yeah. So do you think general election will happen sooner? Because I I just had in my head that like you know they've got an overwhelming majority. They're never gonna especially the position they're in at the minute after the the whole um, Liz Truss scenario and all that kind of stuff. I just thought 
they're going to they're going to wind down the clock until we get to a general election in two years, and we've got no chance of an early one being called. But you think the the, the could be? It, it, it could be. I think you know, in all likelihood, you're entirely right, Ben. You keep going as long as possible. You hope something turns up. Uh, you know, and uh, Starmer does something outrageous, says something outrageous, or you know, has some sort of personal foible that you know is all across the tabloid media, all of which are hugely unlikely. But you know that that you know, and then there is a miracle: the polls turn around, and you know the Conservatives are are re-elected. So yes, I still think that's the more likely of the two. But you could well imagine these sort of these sorts of scenarios, like the Northern Ireland deal, actually they bring themselves down. By accident, and maybe for good, you know, in that sense, good reason. He's trying to, you know, sort out a mess that was left by previous leaders. But it's not, it's absolutely not impossible. Yeah, so they might they might actually run out of the nine lives that they've got then. Hey, look, get your, yeah. cam- get your campaigning hat on. Yeah, yeah, get ready, get ready to you know start door knocking and leaflet delivering everyone, and um, you know get uh, get get your ID ready as well because I think you know I think all those uh, reforms will be in uh, by that point as well. <laughs> yeah, fair dues, fair dues. Yeah, so moving on then to the second segment of uh, this podcast. So we're looking at the basically the news that Nicola Sturgeon uh, announced suddenly that she'll be standing down as the leader of SNP. And she's put it down to exhaustion, I think, Stuart. Um, have we found out any more about this? Is it is it down to exhaustion or is it is it political issues that have gone wrong or you know I, I know she, she's been kind of debating a little bit on kind of gender reform and I've seen and strikes and things like that and I've seen some of them perhaps have gone against it but um yeah is it down to is it down to just exhaustion as she says yeah I, look I mean I don't nobody has said anything contrary to that as yet but yeah it, it was a shock I mean I don't you know I think people thought that it might happen at some point but certainly not as it did and as quickly as it did now you know, whether she was sort of, uh, you know, in that sense, inspired by Jacinda Ardern and, and New Zealand, you know, the, and the very magnanimous way that sort of she, you know, stood down, um, you know, in advance of their uh, next general election, you know, maybe, um, you know, Twitter is always full of, uh, you know, ideas about, you know, whether there was a, a, an ulterior motive and, you know, and look, you know, the SNP, uh, you know, government and, you know, has not been you know, completely immune from, you know, allegations about, um, well, you look, frankly, everything from, you know, the court case over, uh, you know, Alex Salmon right the way through. There are, there are, uh, you know, there are allegations of misbehaviour and sleaze and et cetera, et cetera. Now, whether those had an impact, well, look, who knows? But I think the, the, the reform of, of the gender laws, you know, there, and then the intervention by, you know, the UK government, Absolutely, I think the the vociferousness, the 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 anger, the you know that that came her way personally, Sturgeon's way personally, um, as well as the way that that sort of completely disrupted politics as normal, I, I think will have shocked her. I think it, I mean I think it shocked a lot of people. I think you know I don't think people were quite expecting that level of you know, a vitriol to be, to be thrown around. Maybe, you know, maybe they should have, maybe they should have, you know, expected it. It's a, it's a very controversial issue for some, uh, equally for, you know, younger generations. Uh, it's not controversial at all. You know, this yeah. is very much, I mean, I know we've sort of moved from culture wars onto, uh, you know, indie ref, but it, it's very much in that sort of, 
yeah. culture war sort of field, isn't it? That you know that and you know the re- the rewriting of the Roald Dahl books, you know, to remove uh, words, which you know the Prime Minister you know, had to express views on as as well. Um, does sort of illustrate that you know politics can be a really horrible, nasty, difficult business, and that's you know eight years as whatever it was, eight years I think as as uh, Scottish First Minister, effectively Scottish Prime Minister, would take its toll on anyone. Yeah, I mean, so looking now, now, now that she's stood down, what what does this mean for the SNP? Is is this the death of Scottish indie ref too, or do we think that that will still be what kind of the SNP nail the mass to? I think no. I mean, you know, Scottish independence is not going to go anywhere. I mean, I think um, you know, all the time they didn't have a you know a parliament there. Uh, you know, for all those years before Blair and New Labour, uh, you know, ninety seven, ninety eight times when they, when you know, when the Parliament was, uh, you know, when when there was that devolution, you know, arrangement to London and Scotland and you know Wales and plans for around the you know England as well, which didn't really, it didn't really happen. But uh, you know, it, it, it sort of, I don't say unleashed a genie, but I don't, I don't think it's quite like that because it was always, it was always there. Um, and would have would have come back at some point anyway, a bit like Brexit, really. You know, one of those issues that sort of you know does float around and, and comes out every now and again. But um, it, it will still be there. It will still go there. It will still. It won't, probably won't dominate politics in in quite the same way. I think it's more about you know what it what her removal from you know frontline politics does for the SNP, whether it enables Labour to make some headway which they desperately need to do, particularly at a UK general election, to get enough seats to, you know, to form a, or potentially form a, uh, you know, a majority government in Westminster. And whether any new leader can hold together the coalition, which effectively the SNP is, as, well, as all political parties are, because some of the SNP want to move really quickly on independence and others don't. That that new person that comes in, and also, sorry, just slightly going on, Ben, apologies, <laughs> just tell me to shut up. Um, but, you know, the SNP does have challenges around delivery in education and health and public health as well, that at some point they have to, you know, the electorate will pay attention to. I think it's in some ways, lots of people think it's a sort of a miracle that they've, you know, that, that, that there hasn't been more attention paid to those failures by the Scottish government, by the SNP in government. Well, maybe this is the time that they do start to be held to account for those sorts of failures to deliver, as any government should rightly be. Yeah, I was, I was going to just pick up on that point. So in terms of like, when you compare it to kind of like the UK government, how are they actually doing on, on things like that? Are they facing similar similar issues that the UK government is facing or are they they doing okay it sounds like it's a bit of a mess up there as well I mean I've seen the news about strikes and stuff like that they're having just as many up there across the border aren't they Um, so yeah is is, is that affecting them as well yeah I mean they I mean you know yes you're right Ben I mean similar sorts of challenges but they did set themselves some quite you know specific targets in terms of you know health and education and and they're not they're not meeting them so, okay. uh, so yes, similar, but equally, on the one hand, you can't blame Westminster for everything and say that you know you do things very differently, and you know that's a good political, uh, you know, 
uh, uh, you know, approach on many levels. But then, on the other hand, when you do have control over health and education, they help you know devolve matters. Uh, it's not just about what the Westminster government has or hasn't done. It's about your own government as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, I mean, moving on to, I've seen that there was three candidates who've kind of threw the hat into the rings. Yeah, so it's looking like Kate Forbes, who's current Scottish Finance Secretary, Humza Youssef, who's Scottish Health Secretary, and Ash Regan, as a bit of an outsider, who I think she previously served as Minister for Community Safety, but doesn't hold a, a kind of role in government there at the minute. What what do we kind of know about these three candidates then? Should we start with maybe the Ash Regan as, as the outsider? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, yeah, you're right. The, the outsider, the less household name, uh, Hamza Youssef, you know, people have sort of said that he didn't do particularly well during the, you know, the pandemic. And therefore, that's a question mark uh, that would put Kate Forbes as the, sort of the front runner. Um, but equally, you know, within hours of her announcing her candidature, um, she uh, was quite clear in saying that she wouldn't have backed uh, same sex marriage. Um, and, you know, all hell has broken loose because mm-hmm. that's one of those sorts of issues that people just assumed that was you know accepted you know in stone doesn't matter anymore uh we've moved on from that but and it's put religion back in the, the headlines you know people you don't talk about politics and religion anymore um you know religion used to be a really big driver of the way that people voted you know the conservative party was the you know uh, the church of england uh you know prayer type thing was the, was you know was the was the phrase you know the catholic vote he said would tend to go labor you know uh, you know religion and voting uh you know was it was her thing um and it's and it's sort of not anymore it, it's you know it's just you know it's not just about you know economics it's you know we've all become a bit more you know individualistic in, in the nicest possible sense about the way that we that we vote um and the way that we don't have communities like quite like that whether they've been around you know, heavy industry, whether they were around religion, they don't quite exist in the same way nowadays, or class doesn't quite exist in the same way as it did, you know, in the, in the you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, and it's been declining from the 70s on, 1970s onwards. But um, to have it sort of, you know, plastered across the, the media, you know, religion and uh, vo- uh, voting and, and, and having that issue, it's, uh, it, it's reminded us that I think that, you know, in some parts of you know the country um religion is still really important 100 percent, and i suppose it goes back to the whole culture war stuff that we was kind of talking about before doesn't it it's just you know it's still it's still there in the heart of kind of not just the two main political parties in uk government but within the smp as well and i, I imagine numerous other parties across, across the board as well so it's not really going anywhere and i'm not sure how the kind of polarization of issues like this where you know, we can't get a consensus on one or the other kind of thing. I don't know how we get around that because it seems to be causing real divide everywhere. I, I, no, I agree. But, I mean, Ben, you're right. And, and you know, you think about some parts of Scotland, you know, sectarianism, yeah, which if yeah. we think of it, we tend to, and this is, sorry, this is terrible, but, you know, tend to think of it in a Northern Irish context because of the, you know, the actual, you know, proper conflict and, you know, yeah. you know terrorism. Scotland has sectarianism you know it's, we again tends to come through in football more than anything else um you know range of celtic and all those sorts of things but it's it's still a thing it's still 
a, a division. Um, and, uh, you know, Cape Forbes, not in the same context as you know, Rangers and Celtic, I say, by any stretch of the imagination, but has sort of reminded us that there are still divisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, wait, so if once again, Stuart, I'm going to ask you the, the money question. If, if you was a better man, who would you put your money on to take the leadership of the SNP? I think at the moment, if it, if it remains the three, he's probably OK. I would imagine Kate Forbes will have to you know, drop out. I think she's already losing supporters, uh, literally left, right and centre um, because of those comments. So I can't I can't see her being able to get through. Yeah. Trouble is, anybody be able yeah. to listen back to this podcast in you know in a couple of weeks' time or whatever, or you know if they can't find them later, and then find out I've got everything completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, and we've got still got two years for that general election, Stuart, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She she's the leader of the SNP. Uh, Sunak stood in charge. The polls are uh, you know put him back in front, and um, you know we're late twenty four, twenty five, and uh, we're just about to have a general election. Yeah, <laughs> everything I've said is wrong. Uh, so, so yeah, so we'll just take a quick break there and then we're going to talk about council tax rises after the break and what that will mean for cost of living. So, so we're back and uh, yeah, we're going to be talking a bit about council tax rises and what that means for kind of the cost of living crisis at the minute and what it means for people's, the money in people's pockets as well. Um, so yeah, so it was in the news a lot last week around these council tax rises and stuff like that. I mean, Stuart, I can try and give a bit of a, a basis of my understanding on this. Um, so the way this is very much your way, area, Ben. Very much your area. So yeah, well, we'll we'll see after this description. Um, so yeah, so I mean, my understanding of council finances are that you know each year used to be every three years, but each year now central government provides a lump sum of funding to councils, and that that helps them kind of deliver services and stuff like that. That's accompanied by council tax that councils raise and also councils can go for kind of grants from government for specific projects which are very much allocated to those projects so they can't can't use it for anything else. Um, so in recent years, I suppose since austerity started, local government funding from central government has been cut year on year, meaning councils are becoming increasingly reliant on short-term pots of funding uh, and grants and council tax, really. So so this year, obviously, we've had the kind of biggest rise in inflation in, in we've ever, we've, well, that I've ever seen in my, in my lifetime, you know. But um, I think funding was once cut once again by government. Um, but they did announce from April 2023, councils can increase the council tax by 5% without having to hold a referendum to give residents the opportunity to vote on this. So I think before that, the the kind of re- threshold for a referendum was something like two percent per bandy property. Um, so yeah, so that's been a bit of a three percent raise. Um, so I think it's clear that basically most councils across the country are going to have to raise their council tax by five percent in order to kind of break even, which is a, a legal duty that they have to kind of meet. Um, it's it's also clear I think that. Councils don't see this as the way forward. I think they'd much prefer to receive the sustainable funding from central government that they used to get. Um, but this this kind of isn't the case at the minute. So 
One of the main problems with council tax is that it doesn't necessarily target need. So, for example, in poorer areas, not as many people can afford to pay council tax and are eligible for council tax discounts and other benefits from the council to support them. Often as well in those areas, council tax is less less due to the way council tax is measured per, per kind of property and things like that. So basically, in a nutshell, I don't think the formula of raising council tax works for anyone apart from maybe those in posher and more affluent areas um i think that's it in a nutshell Stuart. but i suppose what we wanted to kind of look a bit into was why a government cutting councils funding year on year isn't it and that i i think for me it probably comes down to trust in councils to deliver services would would you kind of agree with that yeah i think it i think it's that and it's and it's also that they can blame local government so yeah. you know you know we in central government can say well look you're going to cut your budget by x amount of you know millions the local authority um has to then say well what you know what is it we need really need to do or you know maybe we don't have to open that library quite so much or maybe that you know those social care facilities or youth services that we used to deliver aren't quite so you know you know important and it it, it is often it, this is the cross politics it is often younger uh, age groups that tend to suffer most at the hands of cuts. Why? Because they don't yeah. vote. They're often not old enough to vote, and even if they are old enough to vote, they don't vote. So there's no blowback to the politician for making those cuts. Um, and if any, if an electorate does notice there are, you know, worse local services, well, then they blame the local government. They don't. They blame their yeah. council. They don't blame central government. So. I think that's one of the why one of the reasons, particularly post austerity during austerity, why we we saw that. But I think it also, and um, you know, I'm sure you'll have views on this, Ben. But I'd be, uh, you know, I think it also tells us something about the future of devolution. So how much does this really allow us to um, talk to, you know, the way that you know the relationship, if you like, between central and local government going forward? I don't know what your your views are on that, Ben. Yeah, I mean, what I don't quite understand from government is, so the, the main kind of like strap line is, you know, take back control. And I think like what I don't what I don't quite understand is that they are holding all the control and most of the powers centrally in, in kind of central government. And I think like, although and it might be down to being, down to devolution being a political football where perhaps, you know, conservative government doesn't trust a labor council to deliver certain services and that's probably why they're not kind of giving up that control but i just think you know especially with leveling up and that being a key kind of principle for for the current government and stuff like that i don't really understand how they can't trust local governments who do know the residents best that the closest to kind of their communities they see what's kind of going on on a day-to-day basis they they really have got like the ear down to the ground on on you know community issues and what their what their community needs to see in order to improve and stuff like that. So I don't really understand why that trust and uh, is is not being passed over through devolution through funding to match that devolution. Because I mean, they can give they can give powers all day long, but if that funding doesn't come with with the powers, then councils are their hands are tied really they can't really do much on that and to be honest there is something i'm quite passionate on i think like you know councils need to be given funding and powers 
to to get things done. And honestly, I think you'd see this, you know, this need for taking back control and stuff like that. I think you'd see people would start to be happier with that, and people would start to see things improve in the local areas and stuff like that. And I think it's no coincidence that they've been cut year on year, and local areas have got progressively worse, in my opinion. I think I, I think listeners will be able to hear that passion uh, loud and clear. Ben, I think the no, you know, I I think it's partly human nature is that when a new government comes in, they've just spent years campaigning to get into government. The last thing they then want to do is give away control and powers and money to people that may not be of the same political persuasion of them. So there is a sort of an inherent humanness about why that doesn't happen. Does it make it right? No, and I think that you know. You mentioned the take back control, taking back control phrase. It was interesting that a few weeks ago in one of the speeches, you know, that's what Starmer said. He, he used that phrase. He deliberately tried to take that phrase, repatriate that phrase. I don't know if that's right because he didn't create it in the first place. But, you know, take back the phrase or use the phrase um, to to illustrate that very the point the point that you just you know very eloquently made there, which is look as a local government, as a council, as a councillor and a representing a ward or whatever, I know these people much better than you in Westminster, hundreds of miles away in most instances. No. So why not just push the powers, push the money downwards? And even that, you know, it's not really down in that sense, is it? But, you know, to a different level of government yeah. to reflect what local people want, what people in that community you know, need. So, you know, it's one of the things that I think, you know, if people are looking out for a new government, a new way of doing politics, etc., particularly from the Labour Party, I don't know what we'll see from the Conservative Party yet. But, you know, if you were, a, you know, somebody that supported devolution, that supported powers for local government, you'd be looking at the Labour Party and saying, right, let's, you've got to come good on that take back control message. Now, you've got to show what devolution looks like it's just not bidding to central government for those powers back or for money back just give them give them away stay one first thing you do as a labor government or potentially conservative government but in this instance a labor government you give that power away shift it out of westminster that will tell us whether we have i think whether we will have a new type of politics in this country or not 100 percent agree Stuart. yeah i just yeah i mean I even look at the stuff around levelling up, which was, you know, this this government's kind of like key campaign area. And, and it's a bit of a shambles, really, that like <laughs> the government from a central position down in London choose which projects receive funding. Like, I just, I can't really get my head around that either, you know, where like we like councils have to bid in for, for that again. And it's like, they have to go with a begging bowl. And it, it's almost like, like you say, just give give them the funding and like let's see what actually gets delivered and see if it improves what we have at the minute because obviously the majority of the country isn't really happy with the the current state, is it? You know, but and it's not it's not like central governments have got a brilliant track record of exactly. you know delivering yeah. things, delivering policies, buying stuff, you know, PPE. So, yeah. you know, this idea that if you, you know, suddenly let local government loose, they're all going to go mad and you know, nobody's going to deliver is nonsense. Um, uh, but that also suggests that central government is much more efficient at these things. And it's not. Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. 
Um, I, I mean, maybe we just leave that one there before I get on my soapbox and uh, <laughs> and start screaming from the rooftops about that. But uh, probably, probably wise, probably wise. <laughs> but Stuart, thanks for uh, joining me this week on on the podcast. And um, yeah, we'll have another one soon. I think in another couple of weeks. So yeah, look out for that, guys, and we'll be back soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. Take care.